welcome back to the Oyster and the Pearl. I am Jennifer Dutt, the Program Director at Christiana Care. Today we have part two of our conversation about how to develop feedback cultures. And we are going to pick up right where we left off and talk about how consistency is key and how we develop feedback mechanisms so that we can close the loop on our feedback systems and ensure that they remain meaningful and accountable. This is a partnership with the CORD community and specifically the CORD Education Committee and the Subcommittee on Faculty Development. And we are so pleased to have our host today, which is Dr. Sean Olroyd from Kawea Delta. We'll just pick up right where we left off. We're going to talk about it a little bit in the consistency piece. You know, we rebranded feedback to coaching here to make it more palatable. And I I understand there's a lot of questions about feedback and coaching, and that's a hotly debated uh, conversation about coaching, but nonetheless, we did it. But, you know, do coaches ever really add like athletic coaches and music coaches, do they ever really ask their uh, learners how they want to be coached? Probably not. Right. And, and that is uh, very much probably a one-way street and it works. Um, you know, so I don't know. I wonder what there is to glean from that environment in ours, if anything at all. Yeah, that's interesting. I did martial arts for forever and I was an, an instructor and <laughs> I remember you just like triggered this mental model of the one time I tried to, to do that and it didn't go so well, <laughs> you know, like, like you said, Jenna, that coaching in medical education, I think is different than professional coach is different than athletic coach, but you know, your example of an athletic coach there, it's a transactional relationship. You pay mm-hmm. the swim coach to teach your kid to swim faster. And the expectation is you're going to jump off the block as fast as you can and make you jump off the block a hundred times until you know that the jumping off the black part isn't the problem. And then we're going to do the, the turning at the end of the lane thing. I don't know what that's called, but over and over and over again, right? So they're paid to do very specific tasks where I think in medical education, we've, we have a completely different notion now of, of what coaching is supposed to be. And it's you know, appreciative inquiry and trying to help residents you know, comprehend and understand the, the information being given to them. You know, I, I do think there's a third rail with mixing coaches and assessors and that, you know, at least your, your residency faculty should not be coaches because it takes away the psychological safety of having a coach. So, you know, some folks can give the, the value of data and then the coaches can help the learner learn to interpret it together, like in a co-design fashion. But uh, yeah, coaching, I think it's got a lot of potential for helping us um, enhance our feedback culture uh, if, we, if we leverage it correctly. You raise really, really interesting points. And I think that that's part of what makes this such a complicated thing is that we... We want to partner with our learners, but by definition, it's it's an unequal relationship and we can't ever get around that. And I don't think we need to try to, but in point that both Meryl and Mike Jasandi were talking about that, you know, on some level, uh, this is just like wiring. And if you're wired similar to the resident you're working with, it's going to go a lot easier. And then if you're not, you may never know. And we, we work in a place that it becomes the attending's job to start picking up the slack and seeing some patients on their own. And you'll sometimes at the end of the shift, the resident's like, oh, did you not trust me to take care of it? Whereas the next day you may have the resident thinking, man, is this guy ever going to help me out? It's not something I'm in a, the habit of doing, but I, I do wonder, should, you know, is it worth at the beginning of the shift kind of asking the resident kind of what they're looking for from me as a teacher that day? And I suspect they'll have this equally challenging of time creating <laughs> those expectations as the faculty did the other way. All right, um, let's move into our our third principle here. And this is the idea that consistency is key to any 
good culture feedback. And I kind of liken this to saving for your retirement. And if you had to, if you have to consciously do it and pull money out of every paycheck, it's painful and it hurts and you find excuses not to do it. But when it just happens before you ever even think about it, it's that much easier and you don't have to, you don't have to make that massive mental jump to do it. And I think this is where a lot of people have difficulty is if feedback is sort of inconsistent, then it feels like this stressful, emotionally charged event. Let's sit down and have some feedback and is this going to be good or is this going to be bad or how are they going to take it? But if it is a, if it's a, an expected thing that we're going to work together and then we're going to talk about how things went and we don't have to be worried about it, it's a, you know, kind of a constructive time to, to hopefully move ourselves forward, then ho- hopefully that it makes it that much easier of a thing. So I'm curious what your all's experiences are and thoughts on trying to create some kind of automaticity to the way we do feedback. At UAMS, I built this new feedback system here. And so part of anything new means you need repetition until it becomes a culture. One of the first things that we did was we initially did not make this new feedback system requirement. So what that means is at the beginning of every shift, each resident is supposed to send the attending uh, online shift card. And on that shift card, they're supposed to tell you what their specific action item goal is. And then the expectation is that at the end of shift, attending and resident are supposed to talk and then set a new goal for the next shift. In the beginning, there was not much compliance. So then we started making it required and letting and really harshing, harping that like, you need to do this because this is how it's going to be. This is not changing. So I think until it really becomes the culture, at least for me, I think having it as a requirement helps build that. I, I would agree. I think the, the carrot stick model is important to make something habitual. Um, and, I, you know, if you can train your faculty to uh, to include feedback as, as part of a, you know, a daily task on shift. So when you sign out, you must do X type of feedback right? Just like you must close out Epic and you have to sign out your patients, right? It's just a a task that has to be done. Those things can become very habitual. People will, you know, will brush their teeth at the same time every day. If you tell them to do feedback at a certain time of the shift, they'll do it every day, but you have to train them to do it. And then you have to incentivize them to make it a habit. And once it's a habit, it's a habit. And incentives are only necessary when you're incentivizing someone to do something that they don't already do. So you can drop your incentive plan once the, the, the feedback program is robust. But at the beginning, you're going to need to train people. You're going to need to make it a requirement. You're going to have to incentivize them. I think those are the three sort of leadership lessons around this. Yeah. We we talk about the push-pull model, like that uh, med students are very used to feedback being pushed at them from faculty. And so we really try and train our residents to start to engage in pulling feedback. But we definitely did the carrot and stick, carrot and stick as well for both, both the pushers and the pullers. So, you know, we made the pushers, the faculty had to do so many a month and there was a stick associated with it. And same for the residents, they had to request so many every single month. And we did it for a couple of years. Like it took, you know, the beautiful thing about residencies is you can change a culture in three to four years, right? Because they graduate out and then it just becomes the standard of what you do. Now your faculty, it's a little bit harder for, right? But at least you can with your residents. And so, um, you know, we did that for a good three, three years, probably with a stick. Uh, and then we were, and then slowly could kind of back away from that because it just became again, part of the culture. And 
I think that's one of the things like this takes a long time. This isn't something like you're like today, we're going to build this amazing feedback culture and everyone's going to be on board and we're going to do X, Y, and Z faculty. It's not like that. This is going to build over years and years and years. And it's going to be these little changes here and there that help build this consistency. And do you, do you shoot for consistency across all, all faculty too? I mean, are there holdouts? Are there people that you just can never quite get on board? Yep. There's always people you can't get on board. Yeah. I mean, you know, and so be it. There's a lot of faculty. And I always say, if we can just give every resident one piece of feedback a day, it's more than they were getting before, you know? And so if I can get 85, 90% of our folks doing even the bare minimum, that's a lot, you know, that's a decent amount. I also too like to refer people to, um, it's the research at a Chris Watling's doing out of Ontario and he does a lot of coaching. He looks like a lot of this coaching term and he looks a lot at music and sports, kind of like Mike Jasandi was talking about that. Like you pay a coach to look at certain things and they are expected to give you feedback on those certain things. And so there's just an incredible volume of feedback that comes at you with coaches and music and sports. And so it becomes the expectation that this person is going to give you feedback because that's what you're paying them to do. And what we do have a different contract set up we are here to train them through the process of feedback. And so I think if you can normalize that for your faculty too, and and bring it into music and sports and say, Hey, listen, it's not the same, but it's akin to this. And, and it works over here because there's so much feedback coming at them and it's the expectation of the learner and it's the expectation of the coach to happen. I think that helps normalize it for your faculty. And it doesn't feel like an assessment, which is what Mike was talking about. If you can, you know, kind of keep your faculty in this coaching realm and keep your assessment in a different place at some Sometimes that's helpful to get your faculty on board. I found that making it simple goes a long way and tapping into already existing habits is what I found to be the magic. And I kind of had to do it for, for the survival of my program. So this is kind of another a- angle to, to take too that you can add. And I, I love that you keep coming back to the to athletic coach and the, and the type and volume of feedback that um, that person's providing compared to, you know, sort of what our, our adult learner and, and really any postgraduate learner age group, uh, you know, experiences on a shift with us. And I think one of the differences is that we have relationships with them that will be long lasting far beyond the, the day that you're giving feedback. Perhaps you're going to be peers where the athletic coach and the swim swimming kids aren't going to be peers ever. Right. So, so the relationship really matters. And there's this framework that I love called the feedback formula. I, I won't get into the framework, but the whole idea is that um, it's about relationship building. So when you give feedback to someone, were you communicating at your best? And did you just strengthen the relationship between you and the person you're giving feedback to or not? And it, and it takes away the goal only being performance improvement. And it gets it gets in a larger context for us that, that it is really reflective of the fact that we're later in life and potentially we're training our peers. Um, so I think it, it does a nice job of reorienting the, the faculty member and it kind of creates a culture, Sean, that can, can create consistency. If we think about every single time you know, I, did I communicate at my best and did I preserve or enhance the relationship with the person I'm talking to? That, that's an interesting question. and It's going to make you give feedback in a very different way. Yeah, I really I like hope. both of those little paradigm shifts. One, the high frequency, low amplitude. This doesn't need to be an exhaustive evaluation or discussion of everything about you as a physician, but we can talk about one thing. And two, that this is really about developing a relationship and strengthening that relationship rather than just, did I do well? Did I not do well? Or, you know, um, is this going to reflect on 
some sort of formal evaluation down the line, but really more that it's, yeah, we're, whether, whether there are direct peers in our own hospital or their, their partners across, you know, the specialty of emergency medicine, sort of irrelevant because we're, you know, we want to help to kind of build this, uh, build and strengthen our own, our own family of, of emergency medicine physicians. So, so that idea that it is your, your daily feedback is, is just the goal is that is the building and strengthening that relationship. That's a really, I think an important paradigm shift that maybe takes some of the bite out of it for people. I love the point you made. I, I like that's so important and for, for the other faculty. I, I've I actually sometimes had to use that same point to get through to a, a learner during like a, a, you know, a tough feedback session where I had to be like, I, you know, I was like, Hey, you're going to take care of my family. This is really important to me that you're good. <laughs> like you, I want you to be great because I may drop right now. Something might happen to me. And um, I found that like, it's powerful. That's what are we even trying to accomplish here? <laughs> All right. So I think okay. we'll move into our last question. Sound good, Sean? Does that? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think the last uh, thing that we wanted to talk about was feedback without, without appropriate responsiveness to that. So what do you do when there's good feedback? What do you do when there's bad feedback? Uh, how do you close the loop on concerns that are raised? All of that kind of stuff. It can't just go out into the ether and nobody does anything with it. And that I think is one of the hardest things to do because you spend all your time and effort setting up the program uh, and making sure it's running appropriately. And then you can just kind of forget about the back end, uh, which might actually be the most important part. So I'm curious what people's experience with that have been. With any feedback conversation, and just starting from the conversation itself, is you you give this resident feedback, and you want to make sure that they understand what you're telling them before you move forward. So just making sure that they understand what that discussion is, and then understanding if there's any disagreement to that before you move on, and figuring out why that disagreement's there. Now, if that's all addressed, and let's say we give them a specific action item, and we need to follow that up, well, let me go back it has to be followed up. There has to be follow-up in order for us to understand that they are receptive to the feedback and are willing to make those actions. Or else, like you said, it's kind of just wavering and we don't know if it really settled. So there definitely needs to be a either a next meeting or let's say on our next shift together, I want to see you do this, but there has to be some type of follow-up at the end from that. But if there isn't and you don't see a change, really figuring out why they did not feel the need to change or what that core issue was to prevent that change in the first place? I think it depends what your definition of responsiveness is, right? So are you imagining that you're going to give feedback on a shift and then the next day you're going to see a change in behavior from the trainee? So there's some examples of feedback that you could expect that. Perhaps they have a medical knowledge gap and you tell them to go home and read about this X, Y, and Z thing and the next day they're a little bit better prepared. But you know, I, I, I don't know that that's the only way we could judge responsiveness. And I think, Jenna, with your embracing coaching and medical education, the responsiveness is going to come after the learner is able to begin self-analyzing and self-assessing for opportunities to get feedback and then bringing those nuggets to their coach and sitting down and talking about what does this mean? How do I change behavior? Um, how do I advance in the program? And someone helps them process that until eventually they can process it on their own, right? Because you want them to be independent later in life and that they need to be able to independently seek feedback on their performance when they're attending, just, just like they um, are expected to receive as, as residents. So I think responsiveness could be very much delayed, but it could be um, quite formative for the professional identity of the, of the trainee 
and what their behaviors will be like after training. Yeah, and I, I think that's a really important point that there are maybe skills or, or goals that, that we do see change shift to shift, but more likely we're talking about big things that we're going to see develop over the course of you know months to years in a resident. One of the questions, I guess, is how do we uh, keep track of that? You know, is there a way to say, yeah, you know, six months ago, we were talking about this after your shifts, how is it going now? Or, you know, or, or does that just kind of happen organically if we, if we can be consistent with it? I, I do think it happens somewhat organically because you don't want, I would actually think it's detrimental to respond to most things after every piece of feedback, you're looking for the themes, right? You're looking for the long-term trend. Um, if you have residents responding to every bit of feedback they get, if you have a high volume, you know, feedback system, they're going to be ping-ponging all oh. over the place because every faculty has a different piece of expectation. So uh, for us, it's really about trends. I think our, our coaches that we kind of identify in our system really help the residents identify those trends. The residents get better at identifying those trends for themselves. And then those are the people that are kind of in innately aware of what they're working on long-term and can kind of help assess and often bring that to the CCC, right? So it kind of does, again, um, marry coaching and assessment a little bit, but you do see those people progress because they, you advance them in their training, you know, or, or they don't, and they need a little bit more help, but somebody does have to mind the shop. Like somebody has to be paying attention to help them gather those skills because at least my experience is a lot of the residents don't, uh, and I certainly didn't have that experience and that know-how coming into residency. Sean, I'll, I'll add that you have to document in some manner every one of these feedback conversations because they're data points, right? And, and the data is what's going to drive informed decisions by the CCC about promotion um, through residency and graduation eventually. It has to be high quality data and it has to be of enough volume um, that, it, that you can make a reasonable decision. And it has to be done in a context, a sort of learning environment context that, that is authentic and matters, right? So it's a, again, whatever instrument you choose to, to document the, the feedback as data, that, that instrument has to be measuring the thing that you know, it's been uh, purposed for. So it has to be you know, appropriate for the, the hospital setting that you're in or the emergency department that you're in. But if you can attend to all those things, you can start gathering data um, quite frequently. Think about an intubation and how many decisions that you make about a trainee as you watch them do an intubation, right? So there's technique, there's um, medication knowledge, there's communication skills, there's team leadership. Um, each of those are finite pieces of data. And if you were to um, have separate, you know, separate recordings of each of these decisions, think about the volume of data that you were, you'll be able to amass on a trainee after a period of time. But if you just do an end of shift eval, you're never going to capture all of those decisions that could have been made. It's just going to be a global assessment that can be helpful, but is not going to get down to the granular detail of, you know, you got the tube in the trachea, but you really ran that resuscitation terribly, and here's why. So I, I think every feedback opportunity um, is an opportunity for data collection, and it's really, really important. I, a shameless plug for future podcasts. So we, we do have, you know, uh, I think we've already recorded some on direct observation and all the opportunities and where and ways that we can give feedback to our learners that um, are on shift and very action oriented and very specific rather than even this, even though it's an end of shift eval, it still is a little bit global compared to all the things that they do in a given shift. Yeah. 
Well, um, I, I do think that's it. I think we've exhausted it. This was a great conversation around feedback and culture without getting into the nuts and bolts of uh, feedback delivery, but we talked around a lot of it. So I think that we have to probably have some future podcasts on actual nuts and bolts of feedback delivery, but um, it was really great to talk to all of you. I'm super appreciative of Sean's efforts and persistence with this and Cord for their support and Meryl and Michael and Michael for all of you guys kind of lending your time across the coast here to have this cool conversation. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for having me.